Well, I guess we'll just start over. The uh, the Zoom was, uh, it's not you. Zoom is just, uh, Zoom's terrible. It's always cutting out. Um, so I'll, I'll re redo the introduction. Ken Moffat is, uh, he's a veteran of this podcast. You've been on here several times before. The first episode we did was about you and your MP days. And uh, you had the, uh, and then when you went and became a, a cop and you had your uh, your porn star mustache, was, uh, which I'll always love. The uh, You had the uh, dirty Sanchez mustache. and uh, But you also came on here in a, in a total 180 going from a, uh, from MP uh, uh, playgirl model to uh, to uh, giving lectures on uh, the history of Christ, uh, a lot of geography of the Old Testament and New Testament, and uh, it being reinforced by modern satellites, that was probably NGA, National Geospatial Agency, all that good stuff. And um, but now we're going to go into a lecture, and what you were just saying is more so the Inquisition of uh, Inquisition of Christ, and um, this is a less of an episode where I'm talking and more of a more of a lecture and so with that ken it's all yours thank you tommy um i became interested in this topic uh years ago and one of the reasons being is having a degree in history um i decided to not pursue it in the uh, public education because i realized how much i didn't like the kids and uh, <laughs> i realized well because that, that kind of money you might as well do something with it I've and never so heard I, a more brutally honest. I just didn't yeah, like the kid. Oh, well, I used to. We used to teach. Well, <laughs> we used to joke that every school ought to have a wood chipper, but uh, <laughs> that wouldn't fly, especially today. But at any rate, so I decided to use my uh, education and my uh, degree in history, everything that I had learned how to do to research and write history and so on, into biblical history, and that was how we got into. Uh, the exodus that we did and so on mm -hmm. and so uh, i fast forwarded to um i began reading some uh, interesting stuff on the trial or the inquisition as i call it of jesus and i read a book called prelude to glory by wayne d leeper l-e-e-p-e-r i'll give credit where credit is due and i was fascinated by the book because wayne leeper concentrated on the last four days or the roughly 100 hours of Jesus's life. And I thought, man, this is really interesting because it leads directly to the inquisition or as some people call it, the trial of Jesus. And so what I did was I worked up a sermon and for our church here in Moline, Illinois, and I delivered that sermon back on October 24th, uh, 2021, which is just about a year ago. I thought, well, since we're going to do the Inquisition um, and the trial, we're going to get heavily into the, the social aspect of it, the economic aspect of religious and everything that surrounded the first century during the time of Christ. Um, this would be a great way to introduce the trial, the Inquisition. So I thought it, it's all right. I'll just read this as we go along. Sure. So. Uh, okay, we're gonna, so we're going to start with uh, Jerusalem, the last 100 hours of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, in the past several weeks, circa 80, 30 to 33, scholars debate, was it 80, 30, was it 80, 33? I'm not going to quibble. I'll just say it was within that three-year period. What if someone told you that you had four days or roughly 100 hours to live? What would be going through your mind, knowing that you have a very short time left to live, and the clock is ticking. This is exactly the situation Jesus found himself in the final Passover week of his earthly life. Now, if we're to fully appreciate all that he went through leading to his crucifixion, it's imperative that we understand what's taking place contemporaneously to the events surrounding those last days, those final hours. The gospels give us a glimpse into the final days of Jesus' earthly life. And from them, we're able to piece together important details about the final hours. During his final hours, he prepared to undertake the most important events in all of human history, his trial, inquisition, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. But the Gospels, for whatever reason God chose, don't go into a lot of detail as to what was taking place in Jerusalem during that final week of his life on earth. And I've recently been studying the hours of his life, including the last Passover he celebrated with his disciples. So to help us better understand and better grasp what might be going through his mind during those final hours, 
I thought it would be interesting to take a brief look at the world Jesus encountered in that final Passover week. The Romans called Jerusalem a temple city. That temple city, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were given a certain amount of deference or latitude with respect to their religious beliefs and practices. And even though the Romans thought that the belief in one invisible God was strange, so long as the Jews were peaceful, they acquiesced to the cult of Yahweh, as the Romans referred to it. In Mark's gospel, he refers to that week as Passover or the festival of unleavened bread. As the capital of the Jewish nation, Jerusalem was religious, culture, and center of the Jewish world. And the temple was the center of the Jewish universe. In Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 5 through 11, we're told that the Jews, Jewish pilgrims were from all over the Roman world in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, scholars estimate that the population of Jerusalem at that time was about 40,000 people. But since this being Passover week, the population would swell to as many as 100,000. So imagine a, a small community of 400,000, all of a sudden you've just dumped another 60,000 people in there. Imagine putting the population of where I live in Moline, Illinois, and taking the population of Davenport, Iowa, just across the river, the Mississippi River, and this would be Jerusalem during Passover. Pilgrims entering the city would be captivated by the holy city's majesty. There was an aura surrounding the city where God's holy temple resided, and the Passover festival would be celebrated. Jerusalem was revered. It was honored with profound, adoring respect. The temple itself was of such dazzling brilliance with its gold leaf overlays shimmering in the sunlight that pilgrims were mesmerized by its beauty. It was of such magnitude and splendor that one's attention was immediately drawn to it. The temple was truly constructed, I'm sorry, truly considered to be one of the most beautiful structures on earth. And many scholars of ancient history place it in the same league or even surpassing some of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Jews were immensely proud that the temple was theirs and theirs alone. And so sacred was God's temple that signs were written in Greek and Latin that were conspicuously placed throughout the throughout warning Gentiles not to proceed past a certain point within the temple precincts upon pain of death. These signs informed the violator that your blood is on your hands. This was the temple that Jesus would visit and cleanse. I want to emphasize cleanse during this Passover week, and we'll look at that in a little bit. As Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem in those final days, he would have encountered and interacted with various sects within Judaism, all vying for power. These sects were the Sadducees, keeper of the temple and all the ceremonies surrounded with it, including sacrificing the Passover lamb. The Pharisees, strict adherence to the law, that is, as long as it suited their interpretation of the law. And the Herodians, the Herodians were an interesting group. They were Jews, but their loyalty was not to God, not to Yahweh. It was to the family of Herod the Great, and subsequently to his son, Herod Antipas, hence the name Herodians. And the sect of the Essenes, the Essenes preferred not to have anything to do with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, or the scribes, who they rightfully believed had corrupted Yahweh's divine will. The Essenes are known for their monastic lifestyle, which nobody in the community, which notably in the community of Qumran, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now it's interesting that some scholars believe that Jesus and his disciples actually celebrated the Passover in the Essene quarter within Jerusalem. Some say that Jesus was uh, was an Essene. I, I don't think that that's accurate because he still revered the temple. He just condemned the the um, corruption of the temple. The Essenes didn't want anything to do with the temple either way because they thought it was just totally off bounds, totally corrupt. Can I can I interrupt for a second? What what was with the uh... What was with the li uh, the limitations on access at, at punishment of death? What was the what's the reasoning for that? 
just because curiosity. Gentiles were considered to be unclean. Gotcha. And before you could go into the temple, even Jews, uh, you had, and we'll touch on this here in a minute, but before you could go into the temple for any reason, you had to cleanse yourself in what was called a mikvah. And these were, uh, hundreds of them have been found found around the Temple Mount. Um, you cleanse yourself. Like they, or something? No, it's like a baptistry, a modern baptistry okay. in a Protestant church. Gotcha. But the Jew, the, the Gentiles, no matter what they did, were still unclean. Gotcha. So, uh, within Jerusalem, Jesus would have seen the different social classes as well as the different aspects to life there. Think about this for a moment. Within God's divine plan, all Jews were considered to be related to one another, all descendants of Father Abraham. They were all brothers and sisters, so to speak. However, some Jews considered themselves to be first among equals. If you were not of the elite family, which included Caiaphas, the high priest, his father-in-law, Annas, a chief priest, who, by the way, was one of the wealthiest and most thoroughly corrupt men in Israel, you lived in the wealthy section of the city. The wealthy section of the city where the elites lived was adorned with beautiful homes that overlooked the city and the surrounding areas. Here, the clean streets were free from the foul smell of animal dung and other debris. This allowed the elites to stroll about without soiling their expensive garments. And just as important, they didn't have to mingle with or associate with the lower class Jews. Never mind the unclean sinners and pilgrims arriving for Passover. In fact, the elites didn't have to use the public mikvahs. A mikvah was much like our baptistry that you would find in a uh, Protestant church, but it was used for ritual bathing or purification before entering the temple or other purifications rites commanded by the law of Moses. If you were healed of something, leprosy or some disease that you may have, you would go into the mikvah, you would present yourself to the priest, and then you would then you could be could be cleansed. You'd be allowed back into the Jewish community at that point. The elites and wealthy Jews had their own mikvahs decorated with mosaic tiles in their homes. Once again, I don't have to mingle with these low class Jews because I've got my own mikvah in my house. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's, it's having your own. It's having like a private pool or a private gym. You don't have That's to. It. You don't have to yeah. deal with the yeah, the, the, those dirty peasants. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. But the common or poor Jews, such as Jesus, would have used the public mikvah. In fact, hundreds of mikvahs have been found around the temple area, which would have been used by the common Jews as they flocked to the temple to purify themselves prior to offering their sacrifice during Passover. Jesus would have seen the Jewish elite servants going to market, buying goods to prepare for the Passover. If, however, you belong to the common or poorer class, you lived in the less affluent part of the city. During the day, merchants loudly hawked their goods in the bustling, crowded open-air markets. And you know, if you look at videos and films and whatnot of Jerusalem today, it's as hustle and bustle as it was during Jesus' day. It's just a common Middle Eastern marketplace where everything is sold from vendors and street on street vendors and stuff like this. So nothing has really changed other than some of the ambiance. Um, that the streets that we use to conduct your daily affairs were crowded and narrow. They were dirty, filled with smoke, wafting upward from cooking fires inside the tiny homes or the street vendors and the ever present stench of animals jostling you as you're being led through the streets. As one scholar wrote, the strong aversion that existed between the lower classes and the intellectual elite on the, uh, on the one side and the common people on the other side was widespread. In other words, there was no love loss between the two classes, and Jesus knew this. As night crept over the city, the sound of Roman soldiers could be heard as they patrolled the streets to maintain order. And as their ever-vigilant eyes scanning the night looking for insurrectionists or those plotting re revolution against Rome. Pilgrims to the city only added to the already bustling environment, further increasing the crowded living conditions as they sought out a place to stay. 
Lodging accommodations were usually with family or friend while Passover week was being celebrated. This will be the bustling, hurry, chaotic Jerusalem that Jesus would visit during the Passover week. And the lower class people shunned by the elites would be those he would associate with. And it's little wonder that Jesus, when not in Jerusalem, chose to spend the final Passover week in the serenity of the small village of Bethany among his close friends. And Bethany is where, if you're familiar with the story of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, Lazarus, whom he resurrected, uh, brought back from the dead, that's the village that they lived in. Just a little, uh, about, it's, it's just a short walk from Jerusalem. I'm sure that Jesus reflected on the final days of his life here on earth, three years of ministry, walking hundreds of miles, teaching about the coming kingdom and the countless miracles he performed and the innumerable lives he changed. What must it, what he must have been thinking about as time drew nearer and nearer for his appointment with the eternal purpose. It's been said that when a man knows the end is near, only the important things surface. Impending death distills the vital. The vital is bypassed. The unnecessary is overlooked. That which vital is remain. Nothing more trivial. We don't care about the petty stuff. It's only the essence of what's important. So the Messiah, the anointed of God, Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man, all of these uh, terms were actually um, ascribed to him in the New Testament ponders the final days, his final hours, he knew the end was near. Each step was calculated, every act permeated. Jesus' mission was orchestrated before the foundation of the world. Acts chapter two, verse 23, Mark chapter eight, verse 31, among numerous verses that talk about this. As Jesus walked the bustling streets of Jerusalem, one could feel his passion for the people. Imagine him smiling as he watched children joyfully, carefully singing and playing, excited as the Passover festival approaches. He weeps as Jerusalem blissfully ignores her coming plight, which would have been the revolution and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. He's mindful of the the scorning elites who falsely accuse him of wrongdoing. He pleads with his disciples to watch with him as he prays. But alas, weary from the long day, they would sleep. Jesus knew what had to be done. He was born for this purpose, and nothing could change it now. The grains of sand in the hourglass are becoming fewer and fewer. Time is waning. His life course would would culminate into the events that would be unfurled this week. A man so loved, followed by scores of people seeking the truth, yet he would end up alone. The week started with fanfare. All four gospel writers tell the story of Jesus's triumphal entry into the holy city, hailed him as king, and that a great multitude of people would welcome him. But the words he chose, the manner in which they were delivered, were they truly fit for a king as he rode through the streets on the back of a lowly donkey's colt, as recorded in Matthew 21, one through 10? This took place to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah found in chapter 9, verse 9, written perhaps 500 years before his earthly birth. The disciples did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem. A great multitude spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from palm trees and spread them on the road. And incidentally, palm branches were a sign of victory in ancient Israel. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem through the golden gate, there stood the brilliance of his father's temple before him. Beyond the temple, however, but certainly within view, stood Golgotha, the hill where in just a few short hours, Jesus would be sacrificed for our sins. The symbolism was inescapable. This was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy foretelling the Messiah's return. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Could this indeed be the long-awaited Messiah returning to free us from the yoke of oppression suffered at the hands of the Romans? After all, 
it was long rumored that the Messiah would return during the Passover festival. This was an exciting time to be in Jerusalem. But for Jesus, due to the plots on his life by the religious elite, this was a dangerous time to be in Jerusalem. After arriving in Jerusalem, Mark writes that the first thing Jesus did was going to the temple. The hour was late that evening. Undoubtedly, Jesus was tired, but he needed to go to the temple and he needed to see for himself what was taking place. As he returned to the small village of Bethany, less than two miles from Jerusalem, I'm sure he was disturbed at what he had seen in the temple because the very next morning he returned. So much was happening yet there was still so much to be done. The city was now alive with hordes of people pushing, shoving, and busily preparing for the Passover. As he waded through the joyful celebratory crowd, Jesus made his way into the temple. There he took matters into his own hands. Filled with righteous anger at what he was seeing, he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out the temple, those who bought and sold in the temple. He would not allow the temple to be desecrated by turning it into a bazaar. Jesus declared, declared for all to hear that his temple was a house of prayer and not meant to be a den of thieves, Matthew 21, 13. Now, the interesting thing about this, and we'll touch on this shortly, is that we need to understand that Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, some say, well, he cleared, he cleared the temple. He cleansed the temple of the wrongdoing that he saw, the money changers, those buying and selling in there that were actually cheating their fellow Jews. If you came from a foreign country, you had to have Jewish coins to buy or sell something or for, to make an offering in the temple. You couldn't use a Roman coin or a Greek coin. It had to be a Jewish coin. So if I give you a quarter, you exchange it, I get a dime back. So you've just made 15 cents off your fellow Jew. That is illegal. That was a, a violation of Jewish law. And that's one of the things that Jesus said is you turn this into a den of thieves. Is that uh, is that usury? Is that what it was called? Yeah, usury is typically, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, charging interest. But the, the whole point was that, as we said, they're all children of Abraham. You are not to do this to your brother. You are not to do this to your cousin. And this is one of the things that was wrong with it. But the other thing, too, is, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes, is that these people actually rented space from Caiaphas and his father-in-law and set it up like a flea market. Yeah. And so Caiaphas, these guys were making money hand over fist. Why? And that that went to the corruption. <clears throat> why Why is it, why was it illegal? Just because they're all supposed to be of the same family? Correct, yeah. If, if you were not supposed to, um, God separated the Israelites, the Jewish people, for his purpose. Eventually, Gentiles would become in the family. But you were not to um, do anything to, to cause your fellow Jew to look down on you. One of the interesting things about it, you're familiar with the story of Ruth and Boaz. Mm -hmm. Well, Boaz was a very wealthy man and he purposely left grain in the field. Could you for the, could you illuminate that story for the people listening that maybe don't know? Yes, um, Ruth, uh, the book of the Old Testament was, was a Moabite, no less. And they were, they were bitter enemies of the Jewish people. And Naomi was her mother. And Amalek and Naomi, husband and wife, because of a drought in uh, Israel, Bethlehem in particular, moved to Moab. While there, Amalek died, and uh, Ruth's two, I'm sorry, um, Naomi's two sons died as well. Well, Ruth was married to one of Naomi's sons, making Ruth and Naomi mother and daughter-in-law. Naomi goes back to Bethlehem, and that's the famous story where Ruth goes with her, and Naomi says, you go back to your mother and so on and so forth. And Moab, she, and she says, no, where you go, I will go. Where you sleep, I will sleep. Your God will be my God and I will follow him. Okay. She goes back and um, a, a relative of hers, Boaz, a very wealthy man who owns all of these properties and so on and so forth. It came time to harvest. Well, one of the laws found in I think it's either Deuteronomy or Leviticus, 
um, God said that you had to set aside a certain portion for the less well-off, the indigent, the foreigner, and so on. So you can't harvest this portion of the field. Okay. And so Ruth and, and it was left to help your fellow Jew, your fellow person. And so Ruth came through and she, many other people too, would, would harvest from this corner of the field. Long story short, Ruth winds up marrying Boaz, who became um, the father of Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David, who is Jesus's lineage. Now, the interesting thing about this was, as I said, Ruth was a Moabite, bitter enemy to the Israelites. But we look through Jesus's lineage, and here he has this Moabite, which tells us that God looks at all people the same. And even in the lineage of his son, Jesus, his earthly son, um, he's got this Moabite in the lineage. Another interesting thing about this is that when you get a little bit further into the lineage, you see Rahab, the, who was the prostitute from the story of Joshua and the taking of Jericho. So you've got these individuals in Jesus's lineage that God is saying, I don't care about who they are. I want to know how they act hmm. and what kind of person they are. And so you've got these people, these Jewish people sitting at the temple, cheating their fellow brothers, their fellow Jews, if you will, because they had to pay Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, to rent this booth. And this is how they made their money off their fellow Jew. And this is what angered Jesus. And so his thing is, I don't care who they are. Does that include, does that include non-Jews? It eventually will. Yes. Yeah. But non-Jews weren't going to celebrate the Passover. Sure. They, they weren't going to the temple. Sure. So here you have, so here you had the Jews being cheated by Jews. I, I mean, imagine these poor pilgrims. They couldn't bring a lamb with them from, say, um, Ephesus or Rome, but they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They had to buy the lamb or the turtle dove. And what uh, Caiaphas was doing was making money off of them by selling them, in some cases, even defective lambs. What's defective? Which was Just like strictly for... Yeah. What is a defective lamb like disease or just like not not fat, not it, it could be diseased, it could have broken bones. See, it, Caiaphas was a sect of the Sadducees and they were pretty unscrupulous individuals. And God said, "You will give me your best. I don't want your diseased, I don't want your blind, I don't want your crippled. But if I have a crippled lamb and I can't breed that lamb, yeah, okay." I'll slough it off and I'll sell it to one of these guys. And then that's part of what they were doing. And this is why Jesus cleansed the temple. Didn't just clear them out. He cleansed that temple of the wickedness and the wrongdoing that he saw what they were doing. He says, I'm cleansing this. I'm getting rid of the sin out of my father's house. Okay. Now, are these symbolic stories though? Or like, do these, is it supposed to be like literal lambs? Or is it supposed to be symbolic of like even today? Like, could that apply to today? Uh, I'm not sure I understand. Like, um, like the same thing. It'd be like, you know, I don't care who they are and how they act. It'd be like, you know, applicable today. You know, it doesn't really matter who someone is, what their race is or what nationality they are. Like, you should treat them with love and respect. And it's just like, that's, you know, you should see past the whole, it doesn't matter who they are, what they're born into, whether it's modern wealth or religious sect or whatever you should you know it's the golden rule right you should treat others with respect and kindness does yeah and and but let's let's not look, overlook the point that jesus still condemns sin now you can be uh from deepest darkest africa you can be from asia i don't care where you're from sure. if if you are a good person you're a good person that's if right you have been, yeah. yeah but if you're wicked you're wicked yeah yeah and even, God, even if you're the most devout devout Christian or Jew. If you're if you're an evil person, you're an evil person. That is exact exactly correct. God looks at your heart. Not so, the there's, color of your so there's no there's 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 no old boy network. Okay, there's no, no there's no there's no handshake and whiskey and cigar in the back room. It's are nope. you a real one or not? 
Yep, that is exactly correct. Gotcha. You know, we, we have a term that um, it's kind of like uh, you have individuals that show up at church on Sunday morning and uh, just to get their ticket punch, like, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the old days of uh, Disneyland, okay, I got my ticket punched. I'm good for all the rides. And, and they just, they don't really participate. They don't really yeah. do anything to further the kingdom. They're just like, okay, fine. I've got, okay, I'm good for the week. I'll see you in the next week. Punch your card, yeah. Clock, That's exactly Clock right. in and go sleep in the bathroom. Yeah. I got you. It's in interesting because I, I have several friends that are ministers and ones in Texas that I go on this road trip with. And, and you know, it's a common theme that there are a lot of people that just show up thinking that that's good enough. Now, could now is there a difference is that do you look at it as that's not good enough or could it be like at your you know do you look at it like glass half full is it like oh you're halfway there you know you at least kind of you know you made an effort well let's let's um let me get, let's go back to uh, deuteronomy and uh, the greatest commandment uh, when jesus is asked in matthew what is the greatest commandment? He refers them, the Pharisees were always trying to trip him up. They said, what is the greatest commandment? And, and he said, you're to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and all your strength. So it's not like, uh, you know, you love God with yeah, a little bit here, a little bit there. Gotcha. I mean, you're, it, it's kind of like one of the terms that I like to use when I'm delivering a lesson. It's like being a little, little bit pregnant. Either are, you are. <laughs> yeah showing up to the pool, but I'm not going to get in it. I just want to sit here and, and uh, sunbathe or whatever. I, you know, and that's what the unfortunate thing is. That's what Jesus is drawing out. Gotcha. You, you love God or you don't. I got you. There is no middle ground. I got you. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. So Jesus declares for all, for all to hear that my father's house would be a, a house of prayer. Now, the ever-growing throngs of people now milling about the temple precinct no doubtedly observed his temple cleansing. What is he doing? The crowd murmured amongst themselves. This would have included many of the Jewish religious elite who had already conspired to see, conspired to kill Jesus. Not because he was a criminal, but because his teachings threatened their economic fortunes, their social standing, and their political ties with their Roman overlords. See, uh, Caiaphas was in a position to be high priest because he was appointed by the Roman governor, which was a violation of Jewish law. And you go back to the Levitical priesthood under Aaron, Moses' brother, the succession went from Aaron, his sons, all the way down. It did not include being appointed by the Roman governor. But that's a story for another day. Are, are you familiar with the Maccabean Revolt? No. Oh, well, boy, we got another yeah. podcast coming up here. Anyway. Um, is, it, is it important to know going forward? Um, it is from the standpoint that um, the, this is where we see a breakdown of because of the Syrian interjection into the, into the uh, um, Jewish lifestyle after Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC. His kingdom is broken up. The only two kings, generals, really, that we're concerned with are Seleucid and um, Ptolemy. Ptolemy obviously being with Egypt. And my question when I give this class is, who's the most famous pharaoh? Cleopatra. Cleopatra was a pharaoh? Yes, she was. But they were Greek. And then you had the Seleucids, and they were constantly fighting over... Um, Israel. Israel was that border between the two. And who controlled Israel? You controlled it for taxation and so on and so forth. Well, um, Antioch, Antiochus IV came in and said, I'm banning the Jewish religion. And the Jews had a revolt that led to what was known as the Maccabean Revolt. Um, they overthrew the Syrians, which would have been Antiochus IV, and they cleansed the temple. And this is where we get Hanukkah from the Maccabean revolt. It's a, it's a longer story that I won't take a lot of time with, but it was at this point that the civil war broke out amongst the Jews themselves. And the um, Levitical priesthood was done away with. 
They were buying and selling the high priesthood. They were murdering to become high priest. It was just an ugly, ugly situation. 60 B, 63 BC, they invite the Romans in and say, hey, can you kind of help us out on this internal civil war amongst us Jews? And the Romans said, yeah, we'll gladly, we'll gladly come in there. And oh, by the way, once we're in, we're not leaving. The and they rules. became- The old that's, switcheroo. That's it, that's it. That's how Rome wound up in um, running Israel. And so fast forward to the point of now, Jesus's day, the high priest had been appointed uh, for some time by the Roman governor. What, if you don't mind me asking, what, you're obviously very animated about this. What What got you so into, I mean, there are, th there are things that I know you're passionate about. I mean, we've talked about you working with uh, Bill Albrock and, you know, getting a Medal of Honor upgrade and, you know the obvious reasons behind that it's you know it's where it's deserved what what got you so you're obviously animated like you, you you can talk about this stuff you know you don't you don't need the papers like you can just sit here and go i i you don't think mind me continually prying i know i'm driving you away no, from no, the no, papers no, 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 but i kind of no, i kind of no. like just seeing just picking your brain it's like How a, the wheels work it's a, yeah it's a, yeah, it's like a, it's like a what word it's like I, I a jukebox it's, machine i can just press buttons on you it's no, and that, and and that and that's fine. Well, because of I love history. Number one, yeah, and number two, it's because I firmly believe, as a Christian, you can't just read two verses and say, "Okay, I know it all." Well, no, you don't. <laughs> Excuse me. And so, I want to dig in. Inquiring minds want to know. And there, there's a uh, Dan Fogelberg, who's from Illinois, a great singer. I don't know if you're familiar with that, his type of mu music, but um, he has a song where he talks about, you know, the more you know, the less you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what it, and that's what this is. And if I'm going to teach this class, I want to know every single thing there is about it. I don't want to just read three or four verses and try to blow it off like, oh, Ken's really good. No, I want to know everything there is about it. How far back do you go? As far as just history in general. I mean, I so even like within what you what you enjoy about this is your is your appetite for his. So like for instance, like I got like starting in like 2017 I, for whatever reason, I just got really into the Cold War, and like I'm still into it five years later. But in the last year or so, I've actually started kind of like going. Um, I started kind of expanding before and after. I'm going back to like World War Two, and I, well, I've already I've known World War I've always known World War Two pretty well. So like I'm kind of going back to like the 30s, the 20s, and the teens, and then even after I'm kind of reading more recently, 90s, 2000s, and for me it's like there was an initial stake, right, an initial point that I was like, this is badass. I love learning about this, and then you learn so much of it. And you can't, you can never know all of it, but I mean, you get such like a grasp on it that there is like a rule of diminishing returns where you can only dig so much deeper between it's like, you, you know, so much about whatever, you know, whatever general Curtis LeMay, it's like, there's the diminishing returns. Like you don't really care about his dog or, you know, the type right. of underwear he used. So instead you, you go start learning about world war one or, you know, the, whatever the, like the Caribbean, like expeditions understand, uh, 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 Smedley Butler. So for you, is like, do you is there a point where you start to fill up the the vat with so much information that maybe you start learning like pre biblical times or post biblical times? Like, does it flow over? Is what I'm asking. Well, you know, there's sixty six books in the Bible, thirty nine and twenty seven, sixty six, <laughs> and the the first thirty nine books are a foreshadowing of the last 27, if you will, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you're going to thoroughly understand Jesus, his mission, and everything about him, you have to understand the Old Testament. There, There's a term, and I've actually been studying it quite extensively over about the past eight months, maybe a year. It's called theophany, theophany. two Greek words, theos and ophany, meaning God revealed or God manifested. The other part of that term is Christophany, which means Christ appears or Christ manifested. And they are both shown up 
in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, as I actually prefer to call it. I, I give deference to my Hebrew friends that we see God appearing in the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. We see Christ appearing in the Hebrew Bible. That's the theophany and the Christophany. In order to understand everything that we're doing in 21st century America as New Testament Christians, it's essential that we understand Jesus and God appearing and interacting with the Israelites and so on in the Hebrew Bible. And I think that when you stop and you realize that when you look at the burning bush, that was somebody, was it God, was it Jesus? And all of the different encounters that Abraham had or Moses had, these are theophanies or Christophanies. Jesus or Christ manifest himself. Christ was used as an angel. God would send him, okay, I want you to go down and talk to Abraham and tell him that next year he's going to have a baby at this time. Mm. And this story about Isaac eventually being born, the son of promise. So to answer your question, um, it's all fascinating to me. Gotcha. And when you go back from Genesis, Genesis chapter three, with the, let let us make man in our end, who's that us? Hmm. God is talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's Jesus. Yeah. And you go forward. So all of this stuff compiled is just fascinating stuff. And if you're if you really want to understand Jesus, I'll leave you. I'll let I'll go to this part then because if you have a question, but. Are you familiar with the, the story after the resurrection? Um, I think it was the very day or the, well, it had to be three days after. Um, Cleophas and the story about the road to Emmaus. Yeah. Jesus is, um, and most scholars believe that this individual named Cleophas was perhaps a cousin of Jesus, some relation to Jesus. Cleophas and a friend of his were walking back from Jerusalem. They had witnessed it or had been at the crucifixion, something along these lines. So they're walking back to this little village of Emmaus, um, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And uh, next thing you know, here comes this third party, and he's up there talking. He goes, hey, you mind if I join you in the conversation? And he said, why are you look so sad? And he said, well, aren't you aware of what happened in Jerusalem here? Uh, blah, blah, blah. And he, no, I don't think about it they proceed to tell me about the, the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection and all this. They didn't know it was Jesus. Hmm. He prevented seeing who it was. They go to this inn. They have a meal together. And scripture says at this point, he opened their eyes and he said, you know, all of the scripture, meaning the old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, because the new Testament had yet to be written. All of this scripture points to me. And he opened their eyes and they were able to finally understand all of the bits and pieces that, that it was like a jigsaw puzzle throughout the old Testament finally came together. And that's what, that's why it's important that we understand all this to put this puzzle of the new Testament together. Gotcha. There's something fascinating about, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'm disinterested in this stuff sometimes I'm, I'm disinterested in ancient history because it's just so it, 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 you know when you like look at like an old you ever seen like an old like uh, film from like 1910 or something when they colorize it and they like <laughs> slow it down and all of a sudden it turns from this thing that just seems so distant and alien you know these women in these huge like hoop dresses and model T's and you're like the fuck is this and then like they add color to it and you know they'll even put like artificial sound in of like the horses like clop clopping on like the roads and you know and then you see early new york and all of a sudden boom it just it comes alive and you look at it and you're like oh you're like that would have been me i would have been that kid running around throwing a baseball or something you're like this mm -hmm. is like 10 years before babe ruth and it sort of comes to life i have a problem sometimes learning about ancient history because it just there seems to be that veil but then, on the flip side, there is something so badass about it because you look back at, I don't know, even you know, it's America. You know, what what was what was seventy seven years ago, World War Two, and what was sixty years before that, the Civil War, and then what was fifty years before that, like the War of eighteen twelve, and then another thirty something years before that, the Revolutionary War, and then a hundred and seventy years before that is when Harvard was founded. And you're, you just start looking at it and you're like, holy shit, like this is, this is beyond, you know, I'm, I vaguely remember my, you know, meeting my, in, 
several times, my great-grandmother. She was born in, like, 1902. But even that was just, like, the beginning of last century. Let alone America, you go back another century and a half prior to that. So the point is, is, like, there is something badass about them looking back, like, millennia. And you're like, oh. You're like, Mm -hmm. America... America is as recent as, like, the iPhone. And Mm -hmm. it's a flash in the pan. And there is something fascinating about the staying power of something like Jerusalem or, like, the pyramids or, like, Islam. You look at it and you're like, oh, like, these things have... These are, like, old, like, redwood trees. And America is, like, this weird undergrowth. And you start to see them as, like, these... One of the interesting things that, you know, we get into why do I spend so much time studying uh, biblical history is that we need to understand that biblical history was not created in a vacuum. Yeah. There are temporaneous yeah. events circulate. I, I mean, Egypt was thriving and you look at um, all of uh, what, what, what today is known as Turkey or Asia Minor back then, there was a thriving province of Rome. Yeah. And Israel itself is just this little country about the size of uh, New Jersey. But so much was happening, and so much of everything that was going on in the world was affecting because uh, was affecting Israel because Rome was the governing body of Israel. Now, the... Um, what was, what was known as the Sanhedrin was the govern was the governing council. It was made up of seventy one members, the high priest. It was kind of like our picture our Supreme Court. Only our Supreme Court does isn't supposed to legislate, but they sometimes do. Yeah. But the Sanhedrin was the governing body. It was religious, political, and social uh, arbiter of everything pertaining to the Jewish lifestyle. And this is the governing body that Jesus went before for his inquisition. And this is something we'll look at in subsequent podcasts. But during this period in Rome, I'm sorry, during this period in Jerusalem, this day, this final Passover of Jesus's life, the who's who of Roman officials were in the city, not only to be to, to keep an eye on what's going on, but to be seen. And they observed with a hawk's eye the festivals. For instance, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, was there. Now, his home was up in Caesarea Philippi, but while he was down in um, Jerusalem, it was at the Praetorium, his military headquarters. And in just a few hours, this Praetorium would serve as a backdrop for the Inquisition uh, before Pilate. Then we have Herod Antipas, who was there. And Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, which is a region where Jesus was from, and Perea, which is a region just east of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan. And it was important for this so-called king to be seen and to be present because he had a huge ego. This is the same Herod Antipas that Pilate would send Jesus to during his inquisition in a few short hours. The same Herod Antipas who taunted and mocked Jesus and requested that he perform a miracle for his entertainment. The same Herod Antipas that had John the baptizer beheaded for condemning his adulterous marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife. The same Herod Antipas who had James, the brother of John, beheaded because it pleased the Jewish elite. And this is the same Herod Antipas that Jesus rightfully called a fox because he was cunning deceitful and a vile person and in the ancient world being called a fox was not a compliment and then we have Caiaphas the high priest and his father-in-law who were there for the week's activities but Caiaphas and Annas had a lot of of state their selfish concerns involved money power influence with the Romans and security so long as it benefited them And Jesus condemned all of these things, which led to the corruption of the temple. And no doubt Caiaphas was seething at what he had just seen Jesus do when he cleansed the temple. Caiaphas and his father-in-law leased space or booths, much like a modern-day flea market, to the merchants and the money changers in the temple complex. And by Jesus running them out of the temple, he was cutting into their profits. 
Yet Caiaphas was religious leader of the day. His word was law. He'd seen enough. Jesus must die. The end of Jesus's earthly life is really a whirlwind starting that Thursday night. Now we know that Jesus and his disciples secretly met in the upper room within the city limits for what would be their last Passover supper together. And skulking about in the dark shadows of the alleys of Jerusalem was Judas, looking to make a deal with Caiaphas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Now, some scholars believe that Judas was possibly a member of the Zealots. The Zealots were a band of Jewish revolutionaries whose aim it was to overthrow Rome by any means. And uh, they were also known as the Sicarii or the Dagger Men. What they would do was they, they had these long flowing robes and they would wear daggers up uh, their, their sleeves. And as they would come to a, a collaborator, a Jewish collaborator with the Romans, they would, they would stab oh, them. That's and badass. Then, what were they yeah, called? They, what were they called? Yeah. Sicarii. So is that like Sicario? Like the, like, doesn't that mean Hitman? Isn't that? Yeah, it, yeah, exactly it. That's exactly that's it. So badass. Yeah. Did, did you, did you have, have you happened to see that movie? Uh, Sicario, Sicario, yeah, a while yeah, ago. I don't remember. Mo- it's fucking awesome. The the border patrol scene when they're going yep. up and down the six lane highway, and they've got the guy with the big thick glasses and the and the M four. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. That movie, that movie gets you. That that scene always gets your heart rate going. Is there's just yeah. nothing. It's just sun beating and that barking dog, and it's the guy. Yeah. Where, you, know, you don't want to die, do you? And. Do, 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 do. That's a sick movie. Have you seen the second one? It's, it's, I think I did. I'm not 100% sure. I've seen clips of the second one. I don't think I've seen it either. It's called Day of Soldado. But there's some, I think I did, yeah. There's some sick... It's kind of like a... It's like a Mexican Border Patrol version of John Wick. It's fucking awesome. But yes, that's badass. And the guy in flowing rooms so, so with daggers. That, that's, who the, that's who they were. And, and, uh, for, and they, they think this because... Judas was frustrated that Jesus wasn't preaching the violent or military overthrow of Rome. Judas, Judas chose to betray him. Um, one of the interesting things about it was that they think, this is what scholars believe, that one of the reasons Judas went out and hung himself was because he realized what he had done. Yeah. Now, he only thought that, that they, the Caiaphas and the boys were going to uh, whip Jesus and so on and so forth. He had no idea that they were going to send him to the cross. Nobody did. Yeah, That was the, that was the plan of Caiaphas, uh, and we'll get into that when we look at the Inquisition of Jesus. But that's what Judas believed, and he went out and he said, I, I have done wrong. I mean, he didn't do anything to deserve this. Was, so he went out and Yeah, was there... Um... In terms of like prophecies, because right there, we, there's always prophecies in the Bible, and then we always see them come to fruition in the Bible. Was there any prophecy for something like the Holocaust? I've always thought about that, because that seems like a very that seems like a, a near biblical event, right? Something that large and that mechanized by no. It, the only uh, no, there's nothing that you know. Um, not despite what like, those there's a extrapolation, there's not even like a no. It, it just talks about that there's there's evil in the world and there's always going to be evil. Uh, but Nostradamus, you know, coming up with, hey, you know what? No, that's... Uh, I, I had a Jewish buddy in, in college. He's a doctor. He's the smartest person I've ever met. But I remember he and I used to just... We, we, we'd just be sitting there sometimes just drinking. And he'd be like, for whatever reason, every X number of years, somebody tries to kill all the Jews. And he's like, I've, he's like, I read more history. I read the more I realize that, for whatever reason, you know, driving them out into the desert or genocides or slavery or exterminate, someone's always trying to kill all the Jews. And he's like, and it's almost like microbiology. It's like a, he's like, the more you try to squash it out, the more resilient it becomes. So he's like, so he's like, it's kind of like the ultimate like fuck you to Hitler or to like you know, uh, or like the Pharaoh, that he's like that the best conspiracy now is that Jews run the world. And he was like, it kind of is like the biggest comeback story to go from like, you know, burn them all to like, we run the planet. And he said, it's kind of, a you know, he'd just sit there and be like, but he's always, he always, he'd always just look puzzled. He'd be like, for whatever reason, someone's always just trying to kill all of us. 
Yeah, I, I don't understand that either, to be honest with you. It's I think kind it's... of an absurd... Like, I mean, it's all... Not this isn't to, like, passively then, like, condone other genocide. But there is always something that, like... When I, when I meet people that, like, hate Jewish people, I'm always like... You know, I guess you could say that, like... And this will be taken out of context. But I always used to joke that, like... I guess you could say I am racist towards Jewish people and that I do actually think they're better than, like than me like I'm, I'm a white Irish Catholic and I'm like yeah no I don't think they're equal I think they're smarter <laughs> like all the Jewish friends I have are doctors lawyers wildly successful engineers or architects like great family men moral beyond like wise beyond their years like unless of course it's Chuck Schumer then we have to throw out the moral yeah part. fuck that guy but like you know it's but I do look at like my Jewish friends and I'm like yeah they're not the same like across the board like I, I would kind of like in I'd like to be like inducted into that into that inner circle. Maybe I need to get a yarmulke. Okay. <laughs> you know, but to answer your question about the Holocaust being predicted in Scripture, no, um, Scripture doesn't doesn't deal with that. And, and real quickly, um, one of the reasons being is because when Jesus comes, he came to call all nations together. It wasn't to say, okay, you Jews. You're still separate, it, 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 and to to a lesser degree, the Jews tried to separate themselves because they still consider themselves to be the chosen people. But all people are God's chosen people that have come into to the knowledge of Christ. So if you're if you're outside, you choose to be outside. Now, but as far as predictions through the Holocaust and stuff like that, there are people that have made a lot of money writing books about this and about that and you, taking this yeah. out of context you, this out of context you gotta be on the lookout for hucksters that are, yes you do they, yes you do and and i have my good friend in texas and i talk about this one individual i won't remember mention his name because i don't even know if he's still alive but he has made a boatload of money talking about armageddon and yeah. um i i remember back in 1970 Two and seventy-three when I was stationed at Fort uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia, um, I was a charge of, charge of quarters. When everybody went home, I was in charge of the company, and I would go up in the day room. Guys would come off shift, and uh, we'd be up there playing pool. And this this is before satellite TV and all that. And he was always on there selling his books about Armageddon and the last days and stuff like that. And I'll be honest with you, I occasionally I'd listen. It's like, whoa, really? That's oh, yeah. going to happen? Oh yeah, they'll suck you in. They will. That's oh a, yeah, they will. I never spent, never spent, never spent. You gotta, you gotta watch book. yourself on that. You gotta, as long as you're on. It, there's no wrong with. Di there's nothing wrong with dipping your toes in when someone's like, "Let me tell you, the world's ending Sunday." I'll be like, "Tell me more," you know, because sometimes it's just fun to see someone spin a yarn. Like sometimes, yeah. like that is why, like I, I will always love conspiracy theories, not because I take them hook, line, and sinker. There is something fun about just seeing someone who either truly believes what they're saying. Or you know they're trying to make a buck, and there is something. It's like I don't know. It's like a little kid lying with chocolate on his face, and you're like, "Where'd the chocolate?" Get? There is something fascinating about like you know they have a financial stake in it. You know they're right. trying to pull a quick one on you. It's if you can, you can entertain it. You know, it's like messing with a dog and you know getting it angry, but you don't want it to actually bite you. There is something about like you can toy with these these uh, these hucksters where you're like, "Tell me more." You don't ever give them a dime. But you can just sort of, you taunt, right? You got steak in front of a bear. And you're like, just tell me a little more. I'm, I'm thinking about getting out my credit card. And they're like, well, let me tell you this much. They're like, Hillary Clinton's a lizard and Donald Trump is an alien from the center of the earth. And it's like, go on, go on. And it, it's fantastic fiction. So there is something they're, fun about watching them. They are out there. but And, and so this, but, but answer your question about, you know, scripture says nothing about that. But, but here's the interesting point. Even Jesus points out that he does not know. Only God knows. Only the Father knows when all of this will happen, the end of the earth and all this. So these people that tell you, well, I know exactly really? what I was off for a couple of hours or a couple of days. Uh, so let me recalculate when the earth is going to yeah. end. Yeah, that, uh, that, that scam. Where I remember me and my buddy Alex, it was um, I think it was in summer 2011, I think. Now this, it was one of the end of the world predictions. 
and I remember we sat on one of, and it was like it was one of the bigger ones. I don't think it was 2012, but it was one of the other ones. And I remember he and I sat up all night drinking Maker's Mark, just shit-faced, waiting for the end of the world. And it never came. And, and it, it, I just remember us thinking, like, how convenient that you can just recalculate, right? Like, can you give, give me $20. I'm going to go get yeah. you the winning lottery ticket. And, I'll, yeah. and, and, and so you got a headache for nothing, right? Yeah. Well, it was great. I still remember that night. It was a fantastic night. Yeah. Um, but, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, but... But so Jesus knows that the end is coming. He knows that there's just a few hours left. And, and so this has got to be weighing on his mind as, as the Passover evening progressed. Now we need to understand that Passover was this huge celebration, uh, you know, akin to maybe our Christmas. And they finished the Passover meal and everybody's still sitting around the table. And this is when Jesus institutes the, the, the Last Supper or communion. Then they sing a hymn and notice the great Hallel and Jesus left the upper room with his disciples and they headed towards the garden of Gethsemane to, uh, where he's just going to pray. Now we really have to think about the, the scenario. Jesus is maybe nine hours before his crucifixion. It's late. Jesus and his disciples have been up all day. They leave Jerusalem through one of the gates leading to the garden of Gethsemane. Normally, this walk would be a leisurely trek, about 30 minutes. However, tonight, crossing the Kidron Valley, leading to the garden, Jesus' mind is racing with a thousand thoughts fears. As they walk along the path to the garden, Jesus begins to quicken his pace. The hour is rapidly approaching. The disciples, puzzled at this unfamiliar, brisk pace, look at each other and wonder aloud, why is the rabbi walking so fast? Arriving in the garden, apprehension begins to overtake him. Stepping away from his disciples, glancing over his shoulder, he sees countless lit, lit torches leaving the same gate he passed through a short while ago. They appear to be headed in the direction of the garden. He kneels to pray. The torches have descended into the valley below the garden, emitting only a faint glow in the distant light. A short period of time has passed, but then in the distance, he hears the muffled sound of voices. And once again, he can be seen, he can see in the faint light from the torches. They're getting closer and closer and closer. Jesus knows the temple guards and Roman soldiers are closing in. His heart begins to beat faster. His sweat becomes drops of blood. And now, the voices are louder and clearly audible. The men carrying the torches have ascended the slope of the Kidron Valley. Through the olive branches, the garden is now ablaze with flickering light of the torches as the men have entered the garden. We know that his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, could not stay awake while he prayed. But now, because of the chaos, they're awake. And we know that Judas, whom Jesus referred to as a friend with a kiss, betrayed him to the temple guards and the Roman soldiers. And yes, we know the rest of this part of the story. The disciples fell away as Jesus predicted. Jesus was bound like a common criminal, illegally arrested. He was taken before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, where his guilt was a foregone conclusion. Caiaphas saw that. And this is where the inquisition of Jesus of Nazareth begins. That's where we will... Uh pick up next week because I got we got to be finished at 4:30. Uh, but I do have I do have a question real quick um, on what you touched on, and as always, Ken, you've got a great reading voice. But what you said about Jesus not knowing the when the end of the world will I never knew that that was something where you yeah. said only the Father knows. Yes, that's in Matthew. Yes, I never knew that. Yep, yep. He was quizzed on that by his disciples, and he said that the, the time for me to know it's not for my time to know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Interesting. So, so, yeah. So these knuckleheads that are out there saying it's going to happen tomorrow next week, they don't have a clue. You won't but, know. But, and the thing that, that, that infuriates people like me is, how does Jesus not know? And he's part of the Godhead, but you do. <laughs> well, it's it's always, it's like the people that like criticize Tom Brady, and you're always allowed to level criticism. Sure, I'm not saying anybody's beyond reproach, but like, you know, it's like. 
it's the guy who's 60 pounds overweight and is watching TV, and he's like, you know, Brady can't escape the pocket. And it's like, dude, this guy's been to, what, 10 Super Bowls? He's been to 10. I think that's correct. And he's won seven. Tom Brady, as an individual, has more Super Bowls than any franchise. But go on and tell me how you, Bob from Montana, who hasn't left your, left your couch in 38 hours, tell me how you, that's something that's always... You know, it's it's the it's the blue-haired screaming millennial that's like Elon Musk was born into wealth. He didn't earn a dime, and it's like he's worth three hundred billion dollars and is landing rockets vertically. What, what the fuck? Where, where do you, where do you get up? Michael Jordan sucks at basketball. I'll tell you what I would have done in Game Six. What? That's there is something absurd about that. There is a comical absurdity. Well, what's even worse is when you um, you look at some of these TV evangelists, and the, the common thread is "send me your money." Yeah, I'll tell I'll tell you when my new system to understand Armageddon for just forty nine ninety nine. We do take That's social exactly security. Right. We also take food stamps, and it's like what? <laughs> this is some modern day blasphemy shit. Yeah, I just uh, here dial one eight hundred. I got soaked. And, yeah. Uh, and, and there's people out there that do it, and that's a sad part it because because you're preying on I, somebody's. If I send my, and it's kind of like these these people that set up the booths and it's the all, temples. It's 100 that. It, it's all about how do I get? How do I beat him over? How do the I head? get his money out of his pocket into my bank account? And the worst thing is, is I mean, it's one thing if you're just offering something. That's like you're offering something. Like for instance, um. I don't know, I could sell, like, golden Lamborghinis, or I could sell access to hotel suites in Vegas, and, like, these won't fill the void in your soul, but it is a real thing, and you are getting the product you paid for. It's not my fault if you're trying to fill the void with drugs and rats, right? right? But at least I am, deli if I'm a pimp and I'm offering you the whores and the cocaine and the penthouse... I'm still offering the thing. I'm not fraudulent. You know, maybe I'm in an icky business, but that's up for interpretation. The people who are offering something they cannot possibly offer, salvation and or uh, uh, some inside baseball about Armageddon. And not right. only that, you're beating people over that are really looking for something. I mean, even being like a heroin dealer is more noble because although you're killing someone, you are still delivering the product that they want versus really taking advantage of somebody's own crisis of conscience or existential dread about the end of the world and they're, you know, just for four payments of $100. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you need to know to get in that. That's a special kind of, of, of cancer. Yeah, they're out there. They're bad people. But we also learn from them, you know? Maybe you gotta wake up still drunk the next morning and realize the world's not over, and I gotta deal with this hangover. You know, you learn. You go, hey, I don't think these are, I don't think these predictions are right. Fall back and regroup. Yeah, Mr. Moffat, we gotta wrap this one up. Uh, I'll send you this episode when it's uploaded, and uh, thank you for your patience with my uh, unhinged questioning. No, that's fine. Strategies. Uh, that's how. Um, but I love having you on, man. You're a brilliant mind, and um, yeah, I'll see you next week. All right, very good. Mr. Ken Moffat, thank you, brother. I'll send you this episode later. God bless everybody. Have a good one. Ken, peace.